The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Join your hearts with mine as we pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we have acknowledged your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the way to God, the living truth, the true life in whom we live. We do that because he himself announced himself that very way, the the way, the truth, the life. Write these truths onto our hearts by the work of your spirit of truth, whom Jesus promised to come and to lead the apostles and through them, us, by the scriptures, into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. We come to the sixth I Am saying of Jesus in our series today, and that is in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6. We're going to begin to read at chapter 1331 to get a sense of the flow of the evening. This is the evening uh, of Jesus, when Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, uh, and the evening before he would lay down his life for his sheep, for you and for me as we trust in him. The he in verse 31 is Judas, who just departed. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, this I am statement of Jesus, the sixth one, is either the most offensive claim that Jesus ever made, or else it's the best good news that we've ever heard. Or else it's both, actually. About an hour's drive up the road is the University of Redlands. A professor there named Emily Culpepper wrote some few years ago an essay entitled The Spiritual Political Journey of a Feminist Free Thinker. I read a sentence or two from her journal, as it were, to the elective on women in family, church, and society last Thursday. She describes clearly, bluntly, the core offense that has turned her away from the southern, white, Protestant Christianity in which she was raised. It's not the hypocrisy. It's not even the patriarchy and the subjugation of women. The book in which her essay appears is called After Patriarchy. It's not the dominantly masculine presentation of God in the Bible. It's this, to quote her, even beyond the problems presented by a male God and a male savior, there remains the central Christian truth claim, one incarnation of the divine into history at one specific point in history. Belief in a unique penetration of divinity into humanity was no longer just implausible, it was offensive. This concept of one anointed from on high Messiah sent to enter slash save the world is inescapably hierarchical. And salvation requiring bloody sacrifice is necrophilic and sadomasochistic. Now, Dr. Culpepper is not the first one to find this aspect of Christian faith highly offensive. University of Virginia historian Robert Wilkin, in his book Remembering the Christian Past, demonstrates that in the Greco-Roman world of the early Christian centuries, the church's urbane pagan critics found this the most insulting insult of Christianity. As Wilkin summarizes it, critical of it. He summarizes it. The oldest, most enduring criticism of Christianity is an appeal to religious pluralism. For one example, he reports, he uh, summarizes, he quotes the report of Symmachus, a Roman senator in 384, several centuries in, after the coming of Christ, to the emperor Valtinian. And Symmachus said, we gaze at the same stars. The sky belongs to all. The same universe surrounds us. What difference does it make by whose wisdom someone seeks the truth? We cannot attain to so great a mystery by one road. Get a cast as you heard. That's exactly what Jesus claims. That's exactly what the fourth century Christians were preaching. That's why Symmachus found their claim so offensive. And what's striking to me as I was working through this is that Jesus I am, the way, the truth, and the life, really answers much bigger questions than were on the immediate minds of the disciples. Judas' departure, uh, just before our text, it's alluded to there in, in verse 31 where we began, is the trigger for Jesus to move the conversation from the troubling news that one of the inner circle would betray him 
to the even more troubling news that he was going to leave them soon. He issues a parting command to them, love one another as I have loved you. He's demonstrated that that very evening by taking the slave's role and washing their feet and saying, you do the same. But somehow that command kind of slips on by them. He has to repeat it again in chapter 15. Love one another as I have loved you. But they're not processing that right now. They're concerned about this news that he's, he's leaving. Their hearts are troubled, we read in 14.1. So they ask the obvious questions. They ask the questions that probably you and I would want to ask and questions that show how out of sync their teaching really is from the thinking of Jesus. And through his responses to these questions, Jesus shows his friends that what they really need to know is not his destination at this moment, nor the route that he will take to get there, nor why they can't come right now with him. They really need to know who Jesus is. Very briefly, Peter's questions, then Thomas's, and then Philip's wish give them opportunity to clarify this. What we need is really not a map of the future step by step, but a true grasp of our Lord who holds the future. So Peter asks, the end of chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life. Peter doesn't know himself very well. Jesus brings that claim back down to earth. Will you really? Before the rooster crows in the wee hours of tomorrow, the same mouth that protested you would lay down your life is going to deny that you have any acquaintance with me whatsoever, Peter. No. Peter will not lay down his life for Jesus, at least not now. Later, church tradition says he would. But, but what Peter is doesn't understand is that Jesus, the good shepherd, has come to lay down his life for his sheep. For his sheep. Well, the question continues to kind of foment in the, in, in the disciples' mind. When Jesus says, you know the way, uh, Thomas protests, 14.5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this leads to Jesus' I am pronouncement. I am the way and the truth, and the life. And then in case we misunderstand what the significance of those definite articles are, the, 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 the one and only, Jesus adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. Think about those titles, the way. Of course, that's a beautiful Old Testament image of a course of life, but life portrayed as a journey, right? God called Abram, as he says in Genesis 18, as he's kind of reminding himself of his grace to Abraham before he lets Abraham know about what's to become of Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. The way is the pattern of walking and living and conduct in covenant communion with God. That's why the first Psalm talks about the blessed man as the one who doesn't stand in the way of sinners and then closes with that reminder that the Lord knows in that special loving way of knowing the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Conduct of life. Even other religions have that. Gautama Buddha spoke of the eightfold way to enlightenment, to nirvana, to uh, passing out of existence, which is best of all in his, in his eschatology, as it were. Stick to the right road, and you'll arrive at the desired destination. 
But you see, Jesus says, I am the way. The way is ultimately me, it, I, not a path uh, of principles to follow, it's a person. And of course, that deeply offends pluralistic, relativistic tolerance, first century, 21st century, fourth century, it's offensive. But it's good news. God has provided a way. There's a way open to people who've lost their way. There's a way open to wayward people like you and like me. There's a way, and it's Jesus. Old Testament sanctuaries had a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, the inner chamber, where God's glory was especially concentrated on earth. Hebrews tells us that that veil announced that the way into the most holy place was not yet opened, not until Jesus died. And that veil in the temple was ripped by God from top to bottom. No wonder the apostles announced that Jesus' name is the only name given among humanity by which we must be saved. That's Peter's announcement in Acts 4. No wonder Paul said he's the only mediator between God and mankind who gave himself as a ransom for all, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, young and old, rich and poor. He's the way. Come on in to this door. Come on in. That's what we get to preach. There's a way to God, and he is Jesus. And he makes good his claim to be the only way because he is the truth. John prepared us for this in his prologue when he announced, really echoed Moses' vision uh, when Moses got the glimpse of God on Mount Sinai. The Lord passed his glory by. Moses saw the back of God, and the Lord announced his identity. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or as John put it, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. Ultimately, the truth is not merely an intellectual conception of reality or something that corresponds roughly to, to reality. Ultimate, that's the kind of wisdom the Greeks seek, Paul says. 1 Corinthians, but God has a wiser wisdom. wisdom. It's Christ crucified. And that looks like foolishness to Greeks, and it looks like weakness to the Jewish people who long for a military Messiah, but it's God's wise and mighty weapon to deal with our deepest need, our deepest foolishness, our deepest powerlessness, our deepest enslavement. He's the truth. The truth is personal. The word of God, who is God enfleshed and human, obeying and suffering and rising again and giving us life. He is the life. Last time when we were here in John's gospel, we heard Jesus say to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And demonstrate to her the power of his word to make those in the grave live. Lazarus, come out. Her dead brother came out. His voice gives life to dead hearts. Again, John prepared us for this in the prologue. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus' voice makes dead hearts live today. Wow, what good news that is. 
as we share our, the word in our relationships with others, as so many of you are preparing to preach the word, Jesus' voice makes dead hearts live. He is the life. Well, Philip asks, 14.8, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Was poor Philip thinking about Moses' privilege on Mount Sinai to see the back of God? Just so, you know, just show us the Father, just a glimpse. And, and you, you, you heard Jesus reply, Philip, don't you know me yet? You've been with me so long. Don't you know me yet? Don't you know that the one who has seen me has seen the Father? Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's deep mystery. That's really deep mystery that the church has wrestled over and marveled at and worshipped over for centuries. The Roman senator Symmachus spoke of deep mystery, but he had no clue how deep the mystery goes. In Jesus of Nazareth, who walked this earth 30-some years, sometimes hungry, sometimes thirsty, so exhausted he slept through a storm at sea, misunderstood by his closest friends as well as his most jaded and hostile critics, beaten, bloodied, dying in shame. In Jesus of Nazareth, God made good his promise. Emmanuel, God with us. With us, God. God in the flesh. Men and women saw God in human flesh. Through the apostles' testimony, breathed out by God's Spirit in God's scriptures, we too, by faith, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by his call, we live. We embrace the truth that he is. And so we come through Jesus the way to the Father. Offensive? Oh my, yes. Good news, such good news. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Because he gives us life, we embrace him as the truth and we are ushered into the presence of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in sending your eternal beloved Son, the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature, to take flesh and blood, to call us his human brothers and sisters, to lay down his life for his sheep, to usher us into your presence. We have sung that he is the way and the truth and the life. We've heard him announce that to us. Strengthen us, give us joy in the communion that we have with him, and make us fit and faithful witnesses to Jesus, the way to God, the truth from God, the life of God. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.